Welcome back to the book podcast and our journey with Proust. And today we're going to continue with the last part of the overture. So um, this is kind of the introduction to the whole work. It's about 69 pages. And we had the scene of little Marcel and then the mother is reading for him. And we have some indications of his, his joy and his experience of literature and writing. And then we are zooming out and we are now getting back to the to the adult person who's making some reflections about the nature of memory and his own past. There is a large element of hazard in these matters, and a second hazard, that of our own death, often prevents us from awaiting for any length of time the favors of the first. I feel that there is much to be said for the Celtic belief that the souls of those whom we have lost are held captive in some inferior being, in an animal, in a plant, in some inanimate object, and so effectively lost to us until the day, which to many never comes, when we happen to pass by the tree or to obtain possession of the object which forms their prison. Then they start and tremble, they call us by our name, and as soon as we have recognized their voice, the spell is broken. We have delivered them. They have overcome death and return to share our life. And so it is with our past. It is a labor in vain to attempt to recapture it. All the efforts of our intellect must prove futile. The past is hidden somewhere outside the realm, beyond the reach of intellect, in some material object, in the sensation which that material object will give us, which we do not suspect. And as for that object, it depends on chance, whether we come upon it or not, before we ourselves must die. Many years had elapsed during which nothing of Combray, save what was comprised in the theater and the drama of my going to bed there, had any existence for me. When one day in winter, as I came home, my mother, seeing that I was cold, offered me some tea, a thing I did not ordinarily take. I declined at first, and then, for no particular reason, changed my mind. She sent out for one of those short, plump little cakes called Petite Madeleines, which look as though they had been molded in the fluted scallop of a pilgrim's shell. And soon, mechanically, weary after a dull day with the prospect of a depressing morrow, I raised to my lips a spoonful of the tea in which I had soaked a morsel of the cake. No sooner had the warm liquid and the crumbs with it touched my palate than a shudder ran through my whole body, and I stopped intent upon the extraordinary changes that were taking place. An exquisite pleasure had invaded my senses, but individual detached with no suggestion of its origin. And at once the vicissitudes of life had become indifferent to me, its disaster innoxious, its brevity illusory, this new sensation having had on me the effect which love has of filling me with a precious essence. Or rather, this essence was not in me, it was myself. 
I had ceased now to feel mediocre, accidental, mortal. Whence could it have come to me, this all-powerful joy? I was conscious that it was connected with the taste of tea and cake, but that it infinitely transcended those saviors, could not indeed be of the same nature as theirs. Whence did it come? What did it signify? How could I seize upon and define it? I drink a second mouthful, in which I find nothing more than in the first, a third, which gives me rather less than the second. It is time to stop. The potion, it's losing its magic. It is plain that the object of my quest, the truth, lies not in the cup, but in myself. The tea has called up in me, but does not itself understand and can only repeat indefinitely with a gradual loss of strength the same testimony, which I, too, cannot interpret, though I hope at least to be able to call upon the tea for it again and to find it there presently, intact and at my disposal for my final enlightenment. I put down my cup and examine my own mind. It is for it to discover the truth. But how? What an abyss of uncertainty whenever the mind feels that some part of it has strayed beyond its own borders, when it, the seeker, is at once the dark region through which it must go seeking, where all its equipment will avail it nothing. Seek, more than that, create. It is face to face with something which does not so far exist, to which it alone can give reality and substance, which it alone can bring into the light of day. So I just want to point out that this is one of the most iconic scenes in the whole work, maybe the most famous scene, where he is putting the, the little Madeline cookie cake into the tea and then it opens up a whole world of, of reflection and his own past. And it also starts this thinking about what is time, what is the past compared to the present moment, how much is the past a part of the present moment, and, and also the whole nature of the experience and what comes and kind of grows out of it. And also the whole, uh, the role of your own kind of, um, your part in creating some of these memories as well, as opposed to it coming naturally and and how they might also be a they might be a combination of this, which was a big philosophical topic in Proust's time as well. And I began to ask myself, what it could have been, this unremembered state, which brought with it no logical proof of its existence, but only the sense that it was a happy, that it was a real state in whose presence other states of consciousness melted and vanished. I decide to attempt to make it reappear. I retrace my thoughts to the moment at which I drank the first spoonful of tea. I find again the same state illumined by no fresh light. I compel my mind to make one further effort to follow and recapture once again the fleeting sensation. And that nothing may interrupt it in its course, I shut out every obstacle Every extraneous idea, I stop my ears and inhibit all attention to the sounds which come from the next room. And then, feeling that my mind is growing fatigued without having any success to report, 
I compel it for a change to enjoy that distraction which I have just denied it, to think of other things, to rest and refresh itself before the supreme attempt. And then for the second time, I clear an empty space in front of it. I place in position before my mind's eye the still recent taste of that first mouthful. And I feel something start within me. Something that leaves its resting place and attempts to rise. Something that has been embedded like an anchor at a great depth. I do not know yet what it is, but I can feel it mounting slowly. I can measure the resistance, I can hear the echo of great spaces traversed. Undoubtedly, what is thus palpitating in the depths of my being must be the image, the visual memory which, being linked to that taste, has tried to follow it into my conscious mind. But its struggles are too far off, too much confused. Scarcely can I perceive the colorless reflection in which are blended the incapturable whirling medley of radiant hues, and I cannot distinguish its form, cannot invite it, as the one possible interpreter to translate to me the evidence of its contemporary is inseparable paramour, the taste of cake soaked in tea. Cannot ask it to inform me what special circumstance is in question, of what period in my past life. Will it ultimately reach the clear surface of my consciousness, this memory, this old dead moment, which the magnetism of an identical moment has traveled so far to importune, to disturb, to raise up out of the very depths of my being? I cannot tell. Now that I feel nothing, it has stopped has perhaps gone down again into its darkness, from which who can say whether it will ever rise. Ten times over, I must essay the task, must lean down over the abyss, and each time the natural laziness which deters us from every difficult enterprise, every work of importance, has urged me to leave the thing alone. To drink my tea and to think merely of the worries of today and of my hopes for tomorrow, which let themselves be pondered over without effort or distress of mind. And suddenly, the memory returns. The taste was that of the little crumb of Madeleine, which on Sunday mornings at Combray, because on those mornings I did not go out before church time, when I went to say good day to her in her bedroom, my aunt Leonie, used to give me, dipping it first in her own cup of real or of lime flower tea. The sight of the little Madeleine had recalled nothing to my mind before I tasted it, perhaps because I had so often seen such things in the interval without tasting them, on the trays in pastry cook's windows, that their image has dissociated itself from those Combray days to take its place among others more recent, perhaps because of those memories, so long abandoned and put out of mind, nothing now survived, everything was scattered. The forms of things, including that of the little scallop shell of pastry, so richly sensual, 
under its severe religious faults, were either obliterated or had been so long dormant as to have lost the power of expansion which would have allowed them to resume their place in my consciousness. But when from a long distant past nothing subsists, after the people are dead, after the things are broken and scattered, still alone, more fragile, but with more vitality, more unsubstantial, more persistent, more faithful, the smell and taste of things remain poised a long time, like souls, ready to remind us, waiting and hoping for their moment, amid the ruins of all the rest. And there, unfaltering, in the tiny and almost impalpable drop of their essence, the vast structure of recollection. So it's also interesting to notice here that he is kind of foreshadowing the Aunt Leonie moment with saying, referencing the Celtic beliefs, and now she is coming to to life for us here now and also for himself through the taste of the Madeleine cake. And then the last paragraph of the overture. And once I had recognized the taste of the crumb of Madeleine soaked in her decoction of lime flowers, which my aunt used to give me, although I did not yet know and must long postpone the discovery of why this memory made me so happy, immediately the old gray house upon the street where her room was, rose up like the scenery of a theater to attach itself to the little pavilion, opening on to the garden, which had been built out behind it for my parents, the isolated panel which until that moment had been all that I could see, and with the house, the town, from morning to night in all the weathers, the square where I was sent before lunch, the streets along which I used to run errands, the country roads we took when it was fine. And just as the Japanese amused themselves by filling a porcelain bowl with water and steeping it in the little crumbs of paper, which until then are without character or form, but the moment they become wet, stretch themselves and bend, take on color and distinctive shape, become flowers or houses or people, permanent and recognizable, so in that moment all the flowers in our garden and in Monsieur Swan's park and the water lilies and the vivonne and the good folk of the village and the little dwellings and the parish church and the whole of Combray and of its surroundings, taking their proper shapes and growing solid, sprang into being, town and gardens alike from my cup of tea. And that's how the overture ends, with just the mention of Combray and the cup of tea, which are kind of those those two things that are, are coming together here and opening the, the first part of the book, which is just called Combray, which is his childhood vacation uh, village for his grandparents. And uh, he's now he's in some ways doing this back and forth movement like we start when he's going to bed then half dreamy he gets all the memories and then he zooms out of it and then he referenced another um, experience of tasting a cup of tea with the cake and then the whole of Combray opens again and then this is sort of the portal into the whole novel 
like after first a little little uh, <laughs> pre-taste of of his memories from Combray, and now the full version is kind of coming out and he's describing it in such detail, in part also so we can get a much more clear image of this childhood uh, world of his, a little childhood paradise for him in many ways. And uh, this is a bit of helper for us to to enjoy the story and also to have more to reflect on in terms of the of the nature of this and when it comes to the philosophical part because there's a thing here that Proust was very interested in philosophy as well and he at some point he was wondering whether he should write a novel or write a philosophical more like prose essay and then he concluded that in order to explain properly what he wanted or to express what he wanted to do, he had to put philosophy in an, a narrative form or like a literary form because it contains much more than just the prose language in many ways. So, at the, so this results in the whole work being a combination of philosophy and a beautiful story about his own life and just growing, especially artistically and intellectually. And then he's using the story as kind of substance on which to start reflecting on on things. And uh, this is what we're seeing here. So the whole process of the overture is also then a metaphor of the technique of the work and what, he's want, what he wants to show us. And it's also called overture, which is a reference to music because he loves music. And it's also like the, the organic uh, nature of music is something that he wanted to put also into a literary form here. So that's kind of the setup for the the whole work, which is now <laughs> going to be in the next about 3,000 pages. So um, it's a great joy actually to, <laughs> to read. If you read the whole thing and then you start over in the beginning, you see it even more clearly, like what he's trying to do here. And he's just putting the, the first little things out there so you can kind of properly use your own imagination and leave yourself into the story and then you can enjoy both his story and also other things uh, associations you have for yourself and then that is also a part of the point of what Proust wanted to do with his whole work so um, I think we're going to stop it there and um, just want to say to everyone who's made it so far thank you so much for listening and for being part of this journey uh, we're going to stop this one here for the overture and then we're going to continue with Combray and then more of his first early childhood and all the reflections on on life and time and memory and beauty and 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 just the, the best and greatest part of, of life and quality of life and the richness of life. So with that, uh, again, thank you so much for listening and see you again next time. <laughs>